HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a better egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Armando Fuentes, a clinical psychologist and professor at NYU and CUNY. Armando's work is focused on multiculturalism, sexuality, and health equity, and he leads workshops and seminars focused on mental health, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Armando, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be a good one. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) So all of this started um, with a very powerful discussion that you led for our team. And, um, you know, I think basically what would really help is to start at the beginning, explain what DEI is, why it's making its sort of way into the workplace and the corporate world and discussions around it, and, and maybe sort of just give a little bit of background. Um, and then I'll get more specific on sort of like how Haven's Kitchen um was really so happy to be working with you on these initiatives. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So, you know, DEI, which stands for uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, uh, kind of focuses on the fact that so much of our society, including, you know, business, is kind of rooted in the standards that were established by white people when white folks were um, the folks that were able to kind of have flourishing business. And if you think of the roots of capitalism, they were established by slave owners, right? Mm -hmm. So DEI is, you know, by no means a new thing. But when you consider the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd and what that kind of sparked, it created a more national dialogue about Mm -hmm. what is going on in this culture that is so rooted in this inequity. And, you know, I think that what some people call cancel culture is Mm -hmm. also kind of accountability culture. And given that that is the culture that we're living in now, I think a lot of businesses saw this as an opportunity to genuinely seek to grow and to, you know, shed the skin of maybe the white standard of uh, running a business and what voices are listened to, uh, or just at the very least for appearances, um, you know, wanting to at the very least say Black Lives Matter and DEI, even if it is said with a lack of kind of real understanding 
of what it means. Uh, so I think that, you know, in response to your questions, like that's kind of why it's having this uh, movement, for lack of a better way of describing it currently. Right. I mean, in our case, um, I can say, you know, we feel like we are, even though we're in our third sort of year of business, we feel like we are still forming our identity. Um, that means that the brand identity, you know, who our core consumer is, what do we really stand for as a business? And I think it was important to all of us that in thinking about sort of establishing our DNA to some extent and really sort of now that we've been in the field a little bit, taking a moment to really figure out who we are and what we stand for, um, this was important. Um, and, you know, I, everyone who listens to this knows I'm a white woman. I grew up on the Upper East Side. I don't know um, a lot. <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't taught a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that my goals for the company are, A, to have space for these difficult conversations to have, for me personally to get educated, for my team always and forever to feel comfortable and safe. Um, And separately, so that while we have a mission statement, we also have a statement that kind of guides our team. So, you know, and and you and I talked about this. So that isn't just like, we include everyone. It's Mm -hmm. like specifically, how do we make sure that you know, diversity, inclusivity, and equity play out when we are doing brand partnerships or choosing influencer partners or even retailers, um, you know, hiring freelancers. How do we make sure that there's some sort of, you know, tactical, practical set of guidelines that Mm -hmm. we can hold ourselves to? Um, And I guess my question for you is, A, does that sound like kind of what other people are asking for? And also, what are the other goals and outcomes that other companies are looking for? I mean, did we did we miss something? Uh, no, I mean, I I actually I, I'd argue that even the way that you describe it, and in working with you, there is this really genuine desire. And 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 when you and I discussed it originally, I described it as like you want this to be DEI to be an ingredient in the recipe that is Haven's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that to me speaks to that genuine desire. And I think what oftentimes you can see is that, like I said earlier, the uh, let's put Black Lives Matter on, on, in, on, on our social so that right. people, you know, don't come at us. There is maybe an interest in diversity but that equity and inclusion part is kind of left out. Right. And further, I think that this all falls under the umbrella of culture. And right. culture is such a broad um, idea mm-hmm. that what is lost is that so often culture is used as a synonym for race and ethnicity. Right. So, so often it is, you know, I, like I, I logged into LinkedIn for the first time in quite a while the other day. <laughs> and I saw that they're like, oh, let's elevate like black voices in LinkedIn. And I was like, hey, that's wonderful. That's really, really cool. And also, if this is your way of doing uh DEI what about in what about lifting the voices of those living with disability right. those living uh those that are non-binary like right and and i think that that is where a lot of places fail right. and why it feels so empty and and reactive yes and and, and reactive as opposed to just taking taking action and yeah. oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I can't, I can't say that there wasn't a sort of like, wait, how, how are we as a brand supposed to respond to what's going on? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we make sauces, you know, wh- why and how are we supposed to be out there? You know, all of us felt, I think, fairly similarly personally, but 
making the decision as a business, right, to sort of like make a statement where, you know, I, part of me honestly feels like we, we shouldn't be taking up airspace with our statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of me is like, no, you know, we need to make a statement because, you know, there's, there's injustice and, and not making a statement is being complicit, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. But I think a lot of us in, in you know, especially sort of emerging brands, we sort of toggle a little bit. Like we, we want to be, run our businesses. We don't want to overstep kind of where we belong. We certainly, I think it's fair to say, don't want to alienate. And, and that's not to say that a lot of us aren't like, okay, if you're a racist jackass, we don't need you to buy our sauce. It's more like there are complexities on a lot of issues and we don't want to be reductive and alienate anybody. I think it's that's fair to put out there. Um, but we, you know, I think everyone's a little bit like, how do we bridge this? What do we do? And what I'd like to do is instead of every time something horrible comes up that we need to figure out how to respond to and take a day trying to write a statement that it's so ingrained in our, you know, culture and identity as a team that it's just, it, it it's flowing, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. And yeah, I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, so I'm on, I'm on a DEI committee for one of the schools that I, that I, that I teach at. And mm-hmm. it's very fascinating to encounter situations in which, so my work in teaching, in therapy, in consulting, just in my day-to-day life, has consistently been anti-racist without even knowing that that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. All I ever did was <laughs> share my experience, which mm-hmm. is the experience of other marginalized students, which in turn means that you are now in a classroom where you are not just hearing, A, about the white experience, and B, you're hearing this from a professor, from a, I, I'm, right. I'm not a faculty member, I'm an adjunct, but it's a, a person yeah. in a position of authority within academia that does not have a lot of people that look like you if mm-hmm. you are a black or brown kid. So when I'm in this committee, I'm hearing people talk about these ideas and, oh, we could do this and we could do this with a syllabi and we could do, you know, have readings that are more representative. And mm-hmm. I sit there and I'm like, oh, so you weren't doing that all along. Right. So <laughs> this, so all of a sudden these voices, these voices matter. And I think that, you know, there is an importance in like Haven's Kitchen is seeking to do, just make it a part of who you are, but then right. also not resting on those Laurels, so right. it's not like I'm rolling my eyes and saying like, "Oh well, pseh, you y'all don't know what you're doing." I've been doing this this whole time. Right. It's an opportunity for me to then share what I've been doing, but then also be open to the fact that like, "Hey, I'm I'm not the authority." There's going to be plenty of voices that I'm not familiar with, especially with Generation Z. Like these kids are amazing, and mm-hmm. to be able to not be so convinced that I'm doing it the right way because I've been um, because I've been anti-racist all along is foolish and how we end up in a situation where we need to have this conversation all of the time. So I think there's this balance to strike of acknowledging like, hey, I'm doing a good job with also and there's always room for improvement on this. And, you know, the thing that you mentioned about what is I don't want to take up space. Mm-hmm. They're not mutually exclusive things, right? right? So just because, you know, you say something as as a company doesn't mean that an hour later it can't also be a place to provide a platform for someone that may not have the platform that you have, if that makes right. sense. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, some big words. Like, let's talk about the difference between not being racist and being anti-racist. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between like cancel culture and accountability culture, and maybe even a little bit about the word woke. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, again, I'm, I'm like a 48 year old white woman uh-huh. and I, I, you know, 
I shift into different groups of people frequently, um, whether that's like, you know, older generations or people from, you know, not from New York or, you know, and I see that there's a lot of sort of, oh, geez, you know, mm-hmm. here we go. You can't even call it the, the. you know, like there's like, mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there, there's so much disconnect and, and, and I'd, I'm trying to make sense of all of it. And I'm trying to sort of figure out not only clearly, like not only Haven's sort of peace and all of it, but also personally, sure. you know, my sort of space and all of it. And I'd love you to sort of just break down some of some of the big words and some of the big ideas a little bit. Great. So I, I will do it to the best of my capabilities. So, you know, the difference between being not racist and anti-racist is I almost look at being just not being racist, not being an explicitly racist person as that's almost like the easy thing to do, right? Like that's the default. You don't say the slanderous terms. You, you know, you don't make judgments on people, all of that. So that is kind of at its most basic level, not being racist. Being anti-racist to me is more about challenging the things that we have come to accept as the norm. Mm-hmm. So a big thing for me is uh, what does it mean to be professional? Mm-hmm. So when you consider who established that, right. and so much of that has to do with how you dress, which has to do with finances and mm-hmm. accessibility to that. Then another part of it is how you talk. And mm-hmm. you've got to talk a certain way, and you've got to be grammatically correct, and you've, and you've got to do all of this. There is such a strong establishment in white culture in yep. that. And anti-racism speaks to you don't have to dress a certain way. You right. don't have to speak a certain way. Mm-hmm. And celebrating that and providing spaces in which those that dress how they want to dress or speak how they speak are able to be in positions of decision-making. So anti-racism requires fundamentally looking at the foundation of our culture and saying it's racist. And, you know, the the eye rolling of like, oh, you can't call it this right. is, is, is truly someone rolling their eyes because someone with less power than them doesn't like something. Right. And we have come to accept that so much across, ev- like I-, I reflect back on so many things from when I was a kid, mm-hmm. the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing, yeah. the OJ Simpson trial, like all of these things that at its root spoke to patriarchy, spoke to racism, kind of spoke to all of that, but that's not the conversation we were having right. because of who are the people that get to lead the conversation? Who right. are the people that get to ask the questions? So once you start kind of challenging that and looking at it that way, to me, that that's one of the first steps towards anti-racism, towards just saying these things that I've come to accept, mm, they're not necessarily the only right answer, if that makes sense. And people, I guess, are, I mean, there's a fundamental fear Right there, they they might not even recognize it, but you can almost see people like g- grasping at the last shred of power that mm-hmm. their group has, and they can see it slipping away, and it makes them angry, and it makes them terrified. Absolutely, um, and it's well, almost like they don't even connect with that because they don't even know that that's what the feelings are. You got it. To to someone with power equity feels like marginalization. Right, right. And they will do whatever possible to maintain their power. I I believe I gave this example when I did the workshop with Haven's Kitchen that Mm -hmm. if you think of the way that the term feminist has been bastardized to make it about women that hate men, it, it, it wasn't women that determined that. Right. So... You know, you constantly have these things where folks in position of power will challenge anything or minimize those that are being presented with opportunities to sit at the same table. 
it's it's the affirmative action thing. It is people that get mad about affirmative action mm-hmm. or believe that. I mean, the amount of times that someone has said to me, oh, you're going to get into that program because you're a Latino. Oh, well, you know, if you were just a blonde white girl, you wouldn't be here. Right. It, yes. it, 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 it's devaluing mm-hmm. of the talent, the skill set of anyone that is in a position of less power actually has. And And can I say something here also like, and maybe this is like really strange to say, but is it possible that if you were a, a blonde white girl, maybe it would be okay if you didn't get that place? Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, like because it, because n- too bad, and you know that place has been given to that particular group of people for as long as we can remember and including myself, right? Like I've taken places that, you know, I I thought I worked hard for and I thought I deserved, but there's no question that it's all rooted in my privilege. And I'm I'm not being like silly here, right? I mean, this is, that's just the reality, but isn't it safe to say that even if that were the case, and I understand someone saying that to you is devaluing, but that, okay, yeah, that's, that might be, be true right now and that's okay in the context of the larger sort of historical story for for sure well and the the thing to me about that is that it it again it just speaks to a, a belief of who is qualified and what it means to be qualified so right. you're absolutely right like it, it if in psychology, it is it was always hilarious to I went to Fordham for my PhD and mm-hmm. to be there on the day that it was interviews for the following cohort. It, it was a whole lot of white brunette women in power suits like right. that is what you saw. So someone like me. Not just based off my gender as identifying as cis male is an anomaly, but me being a Latino children of immigrants, like Mm -hmm. that is a true anomaly in the field. So I agree that, yeah, it is wonderful to be able to provide those, you know, those spaces for those that are that are less represented. And I think the thing about it is that the, the reason that it, in addition to it being personal, the thing about the qualification aspect of it is that it something that I just don't think is taken into account for any sort of career that is, whether it be doctor or teacher or attorney or anything where you serve people, is that the fact that you come from an underrepresented group and mm-hmm. are here, that is a qualification. Right. You know, a, a friend of mine who's a teacher was having a conversation with me saying that, at a training at his school, they were talking about, well, if you have a lot of black Caribbean kids and you have people that are equally qualified on paper and one is white and one is black Caribbean, what do you do? And my immediate response was, the black Caribbean person is more qualified. Right. Like from like and the belief that you don't value culture as something as an added component, as mm-hmm. an added, I hate to use the term asset, but as right. an added asset to what someone brings to the table is rooted in white supremacy, right? right? It, 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 it's rooted in no one can possibly be more qualified simply based off the fact that they come from a different culture, which is just not true. Right. So getting to, you know, what, what the kind of work that we did, which, you know, mm-hmm. is not complete and will never be complete, mm-hmm. right? Again, we sort of had these two goals. We wanted to make sure that, you know, sometimes we all stumble a little bit on the language. Sometimes, you know, you asked at the very beginning, how comfortable are you talking about these issues? And, you know, most of us were sixes. Some mm-hmm. some were higher. Um, but, you know, it, these are uncomfortable conversations. The language feels a little slippery frankly, for me. I'm not Mm -hmm. always sure if I'm using the right language and I don't want to look like I'm over jargoning either. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to look like I'm like stepping on eggshells, but I also want to be candid and I want my team, more importantly, to feel like they have a safe space where they can be candid and they can give me feedback as well as, you know, everyone else and the managers. Um, And also sort of, you know, that 
that kind of guidelines, you know, the mission statement of sorts Mm -hmm. um, that we can always refer to when we are in, because it's in these little decisions, right? And it's in like, hmm, well, but we've already, okay, mm, how hard should we be looking? You know, how is this, is this weird that they posted that? Should we still do the partnership? Those are the questions that kind of come up. And I think that that's how you express your values. It's in like mm-hmm. the day-to-day stuff. Um, but for companies that aren't necessarily, you know, thinking the way we are or, you know, as early as we are on this, it seems to me like they should be doing, and I use the word should, you know, knowingly, they should <laughs> be doing this work for their own good to some extent. Um and I, I mean, I, I'd love to know if you agree and, and what you see coming out of it sort of beyond creating those spaces and maybe some sort of guidelines. Like, w- what do you see companies getting out of this type of work? My guess is a lot. Yeah, well, I think just from the jump, like you're saying, creating spaces. And, you know, so you, you said, I, I, I consciously start the, my, uh, the training with where are you and your comfort level about talking this from a one to a 10, because imagine the situation of someone who is at a 10, but their boss is at a four. Mm-hmm. And that could speak to a consistent... Uh, microaggressing or consistent times that something comes up that a person might want to mention but does not know if it is a space in which to mention it and you know i think that oftentimes employee satisfaction is looked at like hey google has napping pods and and you you can play like you know table tennis or or Mm -hmm. or do or do whatever but like legit just Give me an environment where me as a radical brown person can be myself and where I don't have to worry about that I'm uh, making you ramifications. Exactly. Or Mm -hmm. that if I am making you uncomfortable, you're celebrating that discomfort rather than utilizing that as something to keep me down. Right. And, you know, to me, it makes sense for any business, any corporation to truly take in the values of DEI because you are going to have happy employees. You're, yep. you're going to have people that you're not, I mean, every single training site, every single job I have been at, the folks of color talk about the racism in a corner. There is no space where you're able to do that. Now, imagine if a company truly went in and was like, we don't want to have corner spaces anymore. If you want to use them, you can. But what we want is to create a space where everybody's voice is valued, where everybody can share what their experience is and we can adapt to that. To me, it it is a no-brainer that that will lead to just employee satisfaction. Yeah. I, I would rather be at a job where I could speak about misogyny, racism, uh, xenophobia, ableism, than be at a job that's going to let me nap for an hour in the middle of the day. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, our work as founders, and I'm assuming that, you know, most people listening, I, I don't know, but I know I hear from a lot of founders. So, mm-hmm. You know, I'm the first to admit that's a little, it's a little scary. Sure. It's a little scary because you don't know, You, if you're thinking, you're worried you're going to mess up. It's not comfortable getting called out. It's not comfortable getting called out, especially when like you're, you're trying and you mean well. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like what you said, you know, get comfortable in that discomfort because something really beautiful will come out of that, not only for your company, but for you as a human, I'm hoping. Absolutely. You know, in, in my therapy work, and even when I'm mentoring students, something that I, you know, just try to guide them in is don't allow decisions that you make to be rooted in the fear of something. Right. Because then you may not necessarily go down the route that is most beneficial for you. You're going to go down the route of the least discomfort. Yeah. And 
in the way that you're describing it, yeah, if a founder is avoiding the the discomfort, that's great for the founder in the short term, but what is that doing for the employees long term and what is that doing for who gets access to be the decision makers uh, in the long term? Yep. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about actually how to do the work. (laughs) Cool. Can't wait. We'll be right back. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can start with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st forward slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's idea for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andreas calls Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says it's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st forward slash hrn. I'm back with Armando Fuentes, and we are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, so there is a model. It, it is an acronym. It's addressing. Mm-hmm. Um, we went through it. I thought it was brilliant, and it was a really great way to sort of open up the lens of what diversity, inclusion, and equity actually mean. They're mm-hmm. not just about race. They're not just about sexuality. Um, so maybe, maybe define diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then we can start talking about the addressing model and where it came from and how you use it. Okay, wonderful. Um, so um, diversity speaks to a lot of different in one place. So you're speaking about variety. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm proudly from Queens, New York, which is a remarkably diverse area. You, you know, I briefly worked at a hospital where if you went out one exit, it was South American. If you went out another mm-hmm. exit, it was an Indian community. If you went out another exit, it was a Southeast Asian community. That's diversity. That is a variety living, uh, living together. Equity speaks to everyone having equitable access to the same opportunities, to the same health care, to the same to the same whatever. So if you, you know, there there's a there's this visualization, uh, there's this cartoon that you could look up about the difference between equity and equality, mm-hmm. where equality is everyone gets the same thing versus equity is everyone gets what they need. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to have something where uh, little kid, where, where people have to look over a fence and the fence is seven feet tall, 
you would not give the same platform to someone that is six feet tall mm -hmm. than you would to someone that is three feet tall. Giving them the same platform is equality. Mm -hmm. Giving the person that is three feet tall more of a platform to stand on so that they can equally see over the fence, that is equity. So <laughs> that is the E of it. Inclusion is, so now you've got the diversity, now you've got the equity, Inclusion is now you have the voices and the voices matter. So I have, you know, I received an email from a company that was uh, actually within my field and they were looking to do a DEI thing. When I go to the website and when I see all the people that are doctors and all the people that are running the clinic, it's a whole bunch of white folks. And when I look at the folks who are taking a slice of their patient work to give to the company, that's where I saw the people of color. Mm -hmm. And I am not super interested in working with a place like that. And because- <laughs> But you could help. You could, you <laughs> could. And if you are in this field that mm -hmm. claims to be very proud of how multicultural it is, right. and these are the optics that you are presenting, right. that says something about inclusion. Right. So well, it's sort it, of like when you have like two, you know, kind of dudes who are the founders and then they hire a bunch of women yes. and they say they're, you know, female led or exactly. something like that. Right. You, like, 100%. You got it. So a situation like that is not exclude. It's not inclusive. Inclusive right. is when the decision makers are the ones are diverse and that the voices are equally valued. Right, so there's a power. That, exactly, yeah. and that to me is what creates that safe space. Okay, now let's talk about addressing. And, and why did you, I mean, I don't, I don't think you personally chose to, to <laughs> use it as the framework, but it is a really helpful framework for thinking about it um, all. And where did it come from and, and why, why choose a framework you know, I guess what what was the thought behind that, and why do you use it sort of to 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 map out how how these workshops go? Sure. Um, so the addressing model was created by a psychologist called Pamela Hayes, and what it is is it's a way of doing a cultural assessment, in essence, um, with your with your client or or your patient, so that you're not necessarily. You know, in, in my own work, I don't look at my patients through the lens of diagnosis. I look at them through the lens of they are this holistic being that diagnosis is a part of who they are. But diagnosis, if you come from an affluent, you know, family where mental health is part of the discussion, that looks very different than if you come from you know, an immigrant family where we don't talk about mental health. Mm -hmm. So it is important then to contextualize your, your patient or your client within this framework of the addressing model. Uh, do you want me to go over what each one of the, what the acronym stands for? Yes. And, you know, taking that from sort of like the patient to kind of, you know, superimposing it onto a team, um, sure. you know, how, like we went through and we really thought about these things and we talked about them and we talked about where we had privilege and where we felt marginalized mm -hmm. um, kind of through, through each different thing. But I guess the question is, you know, then, then what do you do with that? You know? Sure. So, well, so you had asked like why I kind of brought that from, you know, my, my therapy world into, mm -hmm. into, into this world. And, in essence, it's because I created the workshop that I wish I would have had. Yeah. And you created the workshop I wish we had, and we oh, had it. <laughs> awesome. Well, that, 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 that's really sweet. Thank you. That, that, that means a lot. It was um, awesome. I mean, you, like, just as a side, like, we, I don't know, there was, like, incredible trust building and and people opened up and, and it, it, and that was, that's something else we should talk about too. Like not everyone has to open up. Mm -hmm. Um, but this work was really powerful, you know, oh, even awesome. if nothing else, even if, you know, I don't know, we don't come out with a manifesto or, you know, whatever, <sighs> like it just, just that moment among all of us, I think, 
where everyone, you know, a lot of companies talk about bringing your whole self to work and like being 100% who you are. And I know very, very few places where that actually can happen. And it's scary. Um, Mm -hmm. But it felt like it it really did. And and you facilitated that for us. So thank you. Um, Thank you. That that means a lot. Um, That that really, that really means a lot to me. And yeah. No, and and so the, you know, part of what you're talking about with that opening up and that trust is why I did it. So, right. um, you know, I in in my work as a therapist, you have to establish trust, right? Mm-hmm. So from 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 the jump, if you are looking to create change and you're looking to be a vehicle for change, the person has to trust you. Right. And I. And, and, and I'll get to the addressing. I'm just kind of getting there, doing a quick detour. Yeah. Uh, I started teaching multiculturalism uh, for Fordham. And I saw the syllabi that I was presented, and I was like, this is coming from the perspective of a white person teaching about how to acknowledge other cultures, right? right? How to exist amongst other cultures, which then furthers the notion of who get to be the psychologists? Mm-hmm. Who get to be the decision makers? And I was like, I'm not teaching it that way. Mm-hmm. And I created a class where I was like, I'm going to talk about some serious stuff here. And I'm going to be teaching you. And I'm probably going to be working against some stuff that your parents taught you. Mm-hmm. And the only way that that's going to happen is if you trust me. Mm-hmm. And I am going to establish trust by being vulnerable myself. And by sharing my experience and by talking about how tough it was to be a kid that was a working class that went to really good schools and all those feelings that came from that. Right. So recognizing just the power that that had with my students, I was like, okay, well, if it's working for a class and shout out to my therapist who when I was like stressing (laughs) out of like I'm doing this workshop I haven't done it before all she said was like well it's like you're teaching a class and you're so good at that and I was like oh yeah so (laughs) what to me approaching speaking with with Haven's Kitchen was you know I mean I I've I I know y'all through personal relationships as well and I'm like I know it's going to be a you know it's it's a a diverse group of people and maybe they've never had the chance to have their voice elevated maybe they've never had the chance in any other job to have someone come in and maybe share an experience that sounds similar to theirs so I came in, I, like the addressing model to me was just kind of like, hey, let's establish what culture is. It wasn't right. necessarily, and I think you saw it during the workshop, I wasn't intending on that being the entire thing. Right. I was intending on that being like, okay, great, let's talk about this, let's establish that we all are using the same language and then we can move on. And it became a, a thing about trust where yeah. it was clear that because the relationship that y'all have with each other because I'm coming in and talking about what it's like to be raised in a household where I was told there's only one right right way to speak English and only one right way to speak Spanish. And if you want people to take you seriously, you've got to present in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I've never had someone come in and talk about that in in any training. I've never had anyone exhibit their own story. So for me, it was really important to come in with that. The addressing model. Sorry, and and just to build on that, I think that, you know, I could write, you know, I could, I could write like, this is Haven's Kitchen's stance on, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it would literally be like that syllabus coming from the white professor writing about multiculturalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It with, you know, like anything else without the bottom up ground Mm -hmm. roots growing into plants and into flowers and into fruit if you just kind of throw something down it doesn't have anywhere to 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 take root you know it's like it 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 won't work ultimately you're you're absolutely right so that trust is like part of you know you can't say okay today we're going to have a workshop and we're going to build out like what you know why you know, from the board level to, you know, how we work with freelancers, if we haven't carved out that space where we can really all like be completely 
human and and do it as a team, then mm-hmm. it's, it's not a valid exercise, really, because people are still not being honest. You're, you're right. And I think, and, and I love that you mentioned that top down and, and bottom up, because top down tends to be I, right? Like, I think this is the way that mm-hmm. this needs to be done, or I have been taught this is how it needs to be done, versus bottom up is a lot more we. And right. we are building this together. And, and my hope is that in the training, it felt a lot more like a we than yeah. it did like an Armando. And I will say founders, you know, myself very much included, you know, we tend to be eyes. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to talk like we're we's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and we mm-hmm. try really hard, I think, a lot of the time to be we-ish. Uh-huh. But, you know, it comes partly with the territory, you know. Well, well and that's also, you know. I mean, let's, at the end of the day that, I mean, I'm not trying to make this a communist manifesto here, but that's right. capitalism, right? right? Like, we, it is an individualistic society in which... I have mine, and if that means that someone gets less because I have, I'm going to be okay with that because right. I worked hard and I got this degree and I right. did this. Yeah. <laughs> when, and, and great, but that, that again makes it that, that top down. I did right. this, so why can't you? Right. Okay. Okay. Addressing. Addressing, right. Um, so the addressing model, as mentioned, it's typically utilized within uh, the counseling or, or the therapy world. And it's an acronym to kind of capture the various cultural identities that uh, folks can take on. So going through each one, uh, the A speaks to age generation. Uh, the second D speaks to developmental disabilities. So this is something like ADHD or uh, some sort of disorder of learning that a person may be, uh, may be born with. Uh, the second D is a disability that is acquired. So I worked a lot with brain injury patients. So something like a brain injury or something like someone that uh, loses their vision, loses their hearing, loses the ability to walk. That is more of an acquired disability. Um, R re- uh, refers to religion. Uh, so again, any religious identity someone can can take on. Uh, how do I spell? A-D-R-E. Uh, e <laughs> is uh, ethnicity and race. Again, kind of the one that is typically the default that people use for culture. Uh, the first S, I believe, is socioeconomic status. So that's looking at the wealthy, the working class, the poor, so on and so on. Uh, the second S is sexual orientation. Uh, the I refers to being of an indigenous background. Uh, the N is about your nation of origin as well as your language. And the G, the last one, is gender. And so taking that, so if, if I'm, you know, if, if I'm working at a company and let's say we don't either have the money or we don't, we're not quite ready for a workshop, mm-hmm. is there a way for us to take this model and, and do something, use it as a lens f- to help our team think about culture and think about inclusion and think about diversity better? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the activity I did with with y'all was the, you know, take look at each of these identities, ask yourself, where am I privileged? Where am I marginalized? And how does that inform the way that I exist in certain spaces? Anyone can do that. Right. Right. Like anyone can take that model. I I could be, you know, founding a company with someone and we could look at this model and say to ourselves, okay, let's go down each one. Anywhere that we have privilege, what would it be like for someone that is on the downside of privilege than, than us working for our company? Okay, what if you are buying our product? What, if, what about our advertising? What are the ways in which I could see beyond my privilege and tap into the consumer experience of someone that lives with an acquired disability? Yep you know, tap into the experience of someone that is non-binary. Once you are able to kind of identify your own privileges and your own marginalizations across the addressing model, that can inform what you're not thinking of. Yep. It definitely, it's, it's interesting. It kind of lights up 
um, little areas of your brain, you know, Mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily lit before. And I'm trying to think of, there was a recent thing that happened. I'm trying to remember. It was, it had to do with something sales related and something popped into my head about the addressing model. And I was like, oh, it was about um, videos and it was about um, uh, posting them on YouTube. And I don't think, candidly, I'm not sure I would have thought about the, you know, community that can't hear well Mm -hmm. when in the past when I was posting, you know, a, a video, I would be looking at is the content, you know, catchy, like, does the package Mm -hmm. look good, you know, but it just was very upfront for me. Does this have subtitles? Are subtitles easy? You know, can you get subtitles on Mm -hmm. YouTube? Like, and, and, and it just, it like, there was like a little part of my brain that lit up that wouldn't have before. So I think at the very least, just having these things kind of as a framework for yourself. And I think that's a great example. If you're founding something and, and you look at this, like, where are we privileged? And, and what do you do then? Right. So going back to sort of like cancel and accountability, mm-hmm. I think you know me well enough by now. Like mm-hmm. I, I am very aware of my privilege. Right. And I'm, I also want to make sure that I guess that I'm also protecting my team from my privilege in a way, (laughs) you know, like I don't want them to have to like their work to be devalued because somehow I was able to, you know, self fund the cooking school, which then laddered into the thing. And, and so once you've looked at it as a founder, so you, so you are, you know, you're these two founders like that you mentioned and you look through this addressing model and you see where you have privilege then aside from sort of looking at like, okay, how could, if we didn't have this, or how could people sort of on the marginalized side of this react to either our, our policies, our team culture, our product, our, you know, our marketing, what else can you do with it to sort of, I don't know, to inform the way that you think and that you put yourself and your, and your company out there in the world? Well, I mean, I think that looking within the company also is something that is important because, you know, we're, we're talking about what does it look like to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And I think that just kind of like you're saying, like, all right, so I acknowledge my privileges. I don't want that to impact, you know, my, my employees. I, right. You know, I don't want to. I mean, this. to be very, to be specific, I've sure, had, sure. I've had people say, you know, you are doing, you are doing well because, you're white. Mm-hmm. And obviously my first impulse to that is, but I work really hard, mm-hmm. right? Which is probably everyone's first impulse. And mm-hmm. also, you know, you need to get beyond it. But my second impulse was like, no, I, th- I mean, we're also doing really well because they work really hard, right? And and I feel like I'm not necessarily in a position, you know, I think in that, in that moment, you just, you listen, you know, mm-hmm. more than you talk, yes. but it's just something that I'm, that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how I would respond in those situations. And I'm not there yet, clearly, because I'm muddled about it, but I, I, you know. I mean, it's a work in progress, right? And it, right. it is for all of us. And And I think the thing is that, it, it, it's not as if knowledge of your privilege all of a sudden snaps into then right. going the other way with it, right? Like right. privilege, much like our coping strategies, much like things that we do to relieve stress, much in you know the way in which we interact with other people is learned. And right. it's our lives. And, uh, you know, it... I, I, I was a really kind of like dumb 20-year-old man that, you know, was like, oh, yeah, feminists are this and blah, 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 that. <laughs> and it, I learned about privilege and I was like, that's an interesting thing to learn about. Tell me more. <laughs> right. And it just, and it takes time. Yeah. And, and the listening part of it, you know, I think that 
if you are in that situation where you're looking at the addressing model and you identify an area of privilege and someone calls you out on that privilege, what a wonderful time to listen. Yeah. Because I, I think most people, like you're saying, have that instinct to like, no, but 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 I worked I worked really hard. Right. And and the thing is that no one ever said anything about how hard or how little you right. worked. Yep. Right. And it's not even about you. It's not. Right. And, yeah. and that's the thing. It, like it's about you and that you happen to be whatever demographic is on the upside of culture, but it's less about you and more about the person that presented you with the opportunities Mm -hmm. because you're on the because you're on the upside of um of privilege right um so i think that again that's where i just love that model in terms of like when is the time to to speak out on someone else's privilege and when is the time to listen to someone's marginalization and then for you know for uh, I feel like some of this has been like, how do, how, for me, you know, but for the founders who are genuinely interested in making their companies as safe and as comfortable and as happy and as productive for their teams as possible, I mean, do you recommend sitting down and, and, you know, if you were starting a company tomorrow and you wanted to make sure that this was built into your DNA? what would you do? How would you make sure that this was built in? I mean, it would be who I was hiring, uh, who I'm working with. And that for me is a big one because me personally, Mm -hmm. I do not work with people I don't want to work with. Right. And I think that that in and of itself speaks to how much is this in an ingredient? How much is this in the DNA of that? So right. it's who who are you hiring? Who are you affiliating with uh, professionally? Who are you seeking advice from professionally? Mm-hmm. Um, you know what are what businesses are you modeling yourself after? Mm-hmm. Um, like. If you went to business school asking yourself, who are my professors? Who were my classmates? How does that inform what I believe good yeah. business is? Like Even it, who am I connected to on LinkedIn, right? I mean... You, you got it. Right. It all, yeah. it all creates this sense of community, but it's all actually these just like silos. It, right? it, it, it is. And, you know... It, if you think of hiring, right? Like if you are going to hire within, you know, within your community, within your network, and you're recognizing that everyone within your community and network has a really similar background to Mm -hmm. you, then that says something. And I think that, you know, even tapping into that, like you're saying, looking at your LinkedIn, looking into who are the people that you're thinking to yourself, oh, we have this position, let me let me hire them. If they're like a mini version of you, then it's right. asking like, oh, okay, am I biased because of how much I identify with this person? Like, is do we need another voice like mine in this environment? It's really just kind of, it, it really is kind of stripping away a lot of what people may have learned about what business is supposed to look like. Right. I think that's amazing. Is there anything that if you had like a, I think it's called a bullhorn, you know, is that like, 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 know, like, like a, a, like a megaphone? Yeah. A megaphone. Okay. Is that called a bullhorn? I feel like I always use that word and I don't know that it's actually, that's what it is. But yes, if you had a <laughs> megaphone uh-huh. and you could talk to, you know, 2000, or so, you know, founders or people in leadership positions at emerging brands, are there, is there anything you would want them to know or want them to think about or want them to do or just want to put in their brains? I I mean, think about the experience of your, of your most marginalized employees. And are you creating an environment in which they feel they would be able to get your job at some point? Um, Because, 
If you look around at a job and the people that are making money are all white or all straight or all in the binary or all able-bodied and the people that are answering your phone or getting your mail or doing those jobs are the people of color, the people in wheelchairs, the people that are non-binary, then there's a true reckoning that you have to ask yourself about how have you established this business? So like if I had that megaphone, it would be like consider across that dressing that addressing model who is your most marginalized who are among the most marginalized and have you created an environment in which they feel they could sit at your table or not just jobs but real access to power yeah it's not just about jobs because and and i think that that's where it's just so ingrained in our culture, right? That like, oh, well, if we had let Amazon open in Long Island City, think of the jobs that we Mm -hmm. would have had for people where they would be peeing in bottles, where they would not Mm -hmm. have a living wage living in New York City. By the way, and they're coming anyway, right? Like Like they pulled out and now they're coming and I don't think they're getting gazillions of dollars in tax benefits, right? Exactly. (laughs) Like the way that our, the way that our system is structured is but why don't you want us rich people to give people crumbs Mm -hmm. like why are you keeping us from giving them our crumbs while we have all of the loaves and I think it's truly just breaking apart this entire thing that we have accepted as as normal that you know the the notion that like your day-to-day person complains about taxes going to people living in poverty when most people don't really know about taxes and where the money goes speaks to just how ingrained it is in our society to keep those in power in power and to keep those marginalized marginalized yep amazing um i i mean i have you know there's there we're not done Um, (laughs) (laughs) no because i mean with each with within each sort of piece of it you know we could have a whole talk about gender and Mm -hmm. people's pronouns and Mm -hmm. you know all of it um i mean there's just there's there's so much and i think the idea of opening up your brain again and just like creating those little those little switches that maybe wouldn't have turned on before you know is Mm -hmm. is the start um Armando, I, I thank you so much. I'd love you to just tell people, if, if you want, <laughs> how they can reach you if they, if they want to, you know, have a workshop or if they want to ask questions. Or... Sure. I mean, the, the only thing I do right now is just email. Uh, and that right. is uh, PhD at gmail.com. That's A-R-M-A-N-D-O-F-U-E-N-T-E-S-P-H-D at gmail.com. Um, you know, as of right now, I've been able to kind of make a nice living my, for myself pretty organically mm-hmm. um, and naturally. And, and I imagine at some point there's going to be an end game to that where I do need a website and a LinkedIn <laughs> and, and, and all of that. But like, as I'm sure you know about me, like, I'm not necessarily that person. I'm not, yeah. I, I, you know, when you're like a headshot, I'm like, here is a picture of me with I my know. wrestling belt at graduation. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, and... <laughs> And whether I am getting in my own way or whether I am just like truly just challenging a system that I'm like, this doesn't feel natural to me. And it's important for this to all be natural to me. Who yes. knows? But for the time being, it is Armando Fuentes, PhD at gmail.com. For no, your I think that's D- amazing. I, yeah. And for, if you want me to use the, the picture of, from graduation, I'm happy to use that. Um, I also don't. I do now. I do have a headshot, but I didn't for like a long time because I just was like the idea was mortifying to me. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. And and again, <laughs> like my my whole thing is with with how, like I mean I am the CEO administrator and labor of what I'm doing, right? <laughs> and the thing is, if it is going to be that much work, it is how do I make it feel as natural and enjoyable yeah. and true to myself? Like yes. being real is the most important thing for me. Yes, and. You know, I think that that is why I end up working with wonderful companies like yours and with the patients I work with and with the other organizations I work with because it is about realness, not about necessarily the face that I'm putting out there because I want you to hire me for this thing. Yes. No, understood. Um, 
Matt and Amanda, thank you both. I think you're both engineering. I know Matt is doing part A and I think Amanda is doing part B. So I want to thank you guys, as always, for being the best engineers. Um, and all of you listeners, I, you know, I love that you asked the questions and I love that you reach out and, um, I'm glad that I'm providing something for you. And, um, I will be back next week with Gail Becker from Collie Power, um, on another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.